This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Morgan Ames. Professor Ames is an assistant adjunct professor in the School of Information and Interim Associate Director of Research for the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. And she is also affiliated with the Algorithmic Fairness and Opacity Working Group, the Center for Science, Technology, Society, and Policy, and the Berkeley Institute of Data Science. In her vast research portfolio, Professor Ames researches the ideological origins of inequality in the technological world with a focus on utopianism, childhood, and learning. The questions that drive her current projects concern the ways in which young people construct their identities with computers and how computers and the technology design practices that produce them shape the identities they construct. Her book, The Charisma Machine, The Life Death and Legacy of One Laptop Per Child, MIT Press 2019, draws on archival research and a seven-month ethnography in Paraguay to explore the cultural history, results, and legacy of the OLPC project, and what it tells us about the many other technology projects that draw on similar utopian ideals. Her next project extends the questions she asks in the Charisma Machine regarding the interaction between computers, ideology, and identity to explore the role that utopianism plays in discourses around childhood, education, and development in two geographically overlapping but culturally divided worlds, developer culture in the Silicon Valley, and the working class and immigrant communities in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Deb. Thanks so much for having me today. I want to start out with a wonderful description of your book, The Charisma Machine, the life, death, and legacy of one laptop per child, which you call a cautionary tale about technology hype that explains how technologies become charismatic and what the consequences of that charisma can be. What do you mean by calling technology charismatic? And why should we be cautious of it? When we think about charisma, we usually think about charismatic leaders, right? So Max Weber talked a lot about charismatic authority well over a century ago in his work exploring charisma. And so we might think about, you know, presidents or charismatic religious figures, possibly maybe cult figures. I argue, though, that technologies can also be charismatic. And I, in particular, look at the way that machines are charismatic and have become charismatic in our culture. So many promises get attached to them. We see them as pathways to redemption. And many of us really get caught up in the kind of charismatic visions of what tech can do. This is in part the messaging around these pieces of technology, but it's also in the design of these machines themselves. So I say cautious because in my study of it, I think that charisma often blinds people to 
what actual effects maybe a leader might have or a technology might have in the world. Or in some cases, there's a kind of lack of effects. So in the tech world in particular, you know, we think about technologies as being revolutionary so often, and there's so much hype and rhetoric around technologies naturally producing massive change. And so often they don't. Maybe they do over a long time in a kind of very complicated way, but the kind of effortless, complete overhaul of social worlds is something that tech doesn't just do by itself. At the same time, the charismatic story is that it does. I also say that I'm very cautious about charisma because I see that charisma and especially technological charisma is often actually appealing because it's kind of regressive. It really appeals in some ways to the status quo, or at least to, you know, particular visions that are kind of recognizable to people, right? There's something that resonates with people about what that technology is promising to do, but that is only going to resonate if it's something that's kind of recognizable, if it maybe holds up some vision of the world that they particularly like. So there are a couple elements of caution in this particular story. The case that you draw from is the one laptop per child project. And I can see how a lot of the things that you're talking about here are tied to that cautionary tale about charismatic technology plays out in that project. So first, what is the project? And then what drew you to thinking about it? And what can this project and the way that this case plays out tell us about this concept of charismatic technology? It's been about 15 years now, but back in 2005, and especially in 2006 and 2007, one laptop per child, or originally the $100 laptop project, just seemed ubiquitous across Silicon Valley, certainly, but also all around the world as this project that was going to put low-cost but powerful computers in the hands of every child all across the global south. It was going to enable them to learn on their own, outside of or even in spite of schools or other kind of institutions in their lives. They would connect with one another. They would help one another learn. They would teach themselves to program. They would join this kind of global hacker world and ultimately transform their societies. So there was this very strong and at the time incredibly compelling vision. Now, it's very easy to look back now and say, wow, that seems incredibly naive or incredibly unrealistic. But at the time, the founder of the project, Nicholas Negroponte, who was also kind of the main mouthpiece of the project, compared it to the church or the Red Cross. And the implication there was that it really could do no wrong and that any critics were crazy, right? Like who would criticize the Red Cross? Of course, people do criticize the Red Cross, but his implication really was that why would you do that? So I started looking at the history of this project and I found that it didn't actually start in 2005 or even 2004 or three or two. It went back nearly a half century to when Negroponte and another MIT professor, Seymour Papert, joined the faculty of MIT. And I found that Seymour Papert in particular had a whole history of projects that had the same promises attached to them. That same kind of story about children working with computers, teaching themselves, teaching one another. If there was a role for adults in this, it would be co-learner and that they would transform things. And I thought, wow, this is really striking that, you know, not only were these amazing promises being made 
for one laptop per child, but they had been made on all of these other projects as well. There were a lot of things that this relied on. So there was certainly the, the laptop would naturally unlock kids' true potential. It would appeal naturally to kids, but it was really reliant on a particular vision of who was a natural at computers. And this was an ultimately very sexist and very racist idea. So it was connected to what I call in the book, technically precocious boys. And, you know, this is kids who leapfrog past adults, maybe who hated school, but really loved learning kind of technical systems on their own. And of course, this is a very familiar trope, right? It's one that we've heard echoed in decades of media and stories. And one laptop or child didn't specifically say, yes, boys, and in particular, white middle-class boys are the ones who we are reaching. They said, no, 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 this is for everybody, boys and girls. We're focused on the global South after all, right? But the exclusion that this project embodied, I would say, is, is a little more subtle. So the project kind of referenced in these stories about kids hating school and leapfrogging past adults, they've referenced decades of these media stories, this messaging about how American boys and white middle-class boys in particular were really naturally drawn to computers and other tech. And of course, even this kind of quote unquote natural proclivity, it was anything but natural that was actively created. But, you know, in our culture, US culture especially, we've kind of come to, there's a kind of unquestioning assumption that like, oh yeah, of course kids and especially boys are going to love tech. And so the project really kind of drew on that and that's what made it charismatic across the tech world, which was, of course, filled with people who do have that kind of affective attachment to tech, but also across American culture and beyond, I would say decent amount of European culture has a kind of similar trope and some other places in the world. So this project really resonated and it really excited people. They wanted to unlock this kind of potential in children with this laptop. I think you've already started to answer this question, but you propose in your essay that you have on one laptop per child, and I'm broadening your claim out here from its very specific focus on the laptop to tech products generally, that the power of these products doesn't, in your view, come from the messy material realities of their use, but rather in their symbolic function, right? What they seem to represent, and I'm quoting you here, their ability to produce or connect to certain dreams for a techno-social future. So you've started to get at this, and I think this is really important because it opens up issues of equity. It opens up questions of inclusion and globalizing kind of localized assumptions. But what does the laptop symbolize, particularly in a space like Paraguay, which is the context for your case study? And how does tech more broadly come to symbolize a futurist imagination? Why does the techno-social future have so much aspirational value and symbolic weight? Yeah, it's a big question. One I do try to get to through this one case study, although I'm trying to look at it a little more broadly now. Um, one Laptop Per Child in so many ways is such a perfect encapsulation of this kind of tech hype, right? The sort of stories that get told about technologies. And as I studied this project, I found that the same stories were not only told in this kind of history of Seymour Papert's projects, but in a lot of other projects too. I mean, we look at the promise around MOOCs, these massively open online courses back about a decade ago now. We look at a lot of the promise around, you know, various kind of environments to teach kids programming. We look at a lot of these kinds of things. And all of these end up connecting to particular 
American imaginaries where, you know, imaginaries are like this concept of how we imagine ourselves to be American or to be maybe a techie. There's a lot of different kind of subgroups of imaginaries here, but it's common across much of the Western tech industry. There's certainly an element of record individualism. There's a strong element of anti-authority and these are pretty familiar in the US and in the tech world. What I found interestingly was that they were really not so familiar in some of the places where these laptops went, including Paraguay, where I did field work in 2010 and 2013. I also did visits to Peru and Uruguay. So these stories didn't necessarily translate. The symbolism didn't necessarily kind of carry over to a place that didn't value the same kinds of anti-authority, rugged individualism. That's not to say, of course, that Paraguay is a blank slate. You know, it's been saturated with media, including American, U.S. media, but also, you know, media locally and from elsewhere in South America for decades. It's still in many ways kind of under the shadow of a dictatorship that you know, ended in 1989, but the same party has been in power for much of the time since. There are deep social and class inequities there. There's very strong kind of gender inequity. So the way that these ideas did get translated were not so much about this kind of hacker child, right, teaching themselves to program, but a more kind of general possibility for maybe cosmopolitanism, for skills, for connecting to the outside world more, to economic opportunity. And it connected nicely in with open source software, which was very big across much of Latin America. So that was another big draw for this project in Paraguay and Uruguay and Peru and elsewhere in that region in particular. You know, you were talking about some of the stories and some of the symbolism of the American West. And I wanted to ask you about your current project, which you call Seeing Like a Valley, the Moral Visions of Silicon Valley. And would you talk a lot about the stories and the symbolisms that center in moral vision of Silicon Valley and, and in the West? It's fascinating and totally necessary work. And I bet living and working in the context of Berkeley and the East Bay probably gives you daily material for analysis. What were or what are you seeing in the Bay Area that led you to this project? I did an undergrad in computer science at UC Berkeley, and I was at the time kind of frustrated with some of the things I experienced. And I think that sort of planted the seeds for a lot of the research that I did later. You know, on one hand, I encountered all of this rhetoric about computer science being sort of superior to all other majors. Not only was it more technically difficult, but it was more lucrative. And so many people in other STEM fields ended up in programming anyway. There was also sexism that I encountered, especially among students, but also even among some of the professors that really disappointed me. At the same time, there were some that were very kind of anti-sexist. So I think there's kind of two sides to that, but it was certainly present. The training itself, though, focused so much on power of abstraction, of modularization, which of course are important concepts in computer science, but often the real world was sort of considered an inconvenience at best. It's something like to push aside and ignore if at all possible. So I was frustrated in this environment, and I really didn't have the language to express why at the time. So when I pondered what I should do after graduation, I thought, okay, well, I could go be a code monkey in some company, and I could probably not be very happy with that and continue feeling frustrated and not having language to really talk about it. Or I could go to grad school and hopefully develop some, some of the language to really kind of, you know, critically look at the industry. So as is probably obvious at this point, I decided to go to grad school. And my grad training was with Fred Turner at Stanford. He's a cultural historian of the tech world. He's done some really deep critical work in, for example, like the history of the idea of personal computing and the ways that tech came to be seen not as 
a tool for oppression, which, you know, in some circles in the 50s and 60s, you know, these big mainframe computers were literally symbols of oppression. But there was this shift in the late 60s and 70s and onward to tech being a tool of liberation, even though those oppressive tendencies, I think, as we're especially seeing now, never went away, right? So he really kind of studies that particular moment in the 1970s. And I really wanted to follow up on how all of these stories, you know, the social imaginaries that they imply, kind of the underlying moral vision of the tech world that was kind of established then, but has really bifurcated and and exploded in many ways, still reinforces certain kinds of exclusion, some oppression, even as it makes claims to level and to liberate. I do also want to say that I'm happy to be part of a really fantastic group of fellow researchers who are also looking at this from various angles. And the person who convened us is Joe Klett. He's a fellow of the Science History Institute based down in Santa Cruz. And that's under the umbrella of Seeing Like a Valley. And there's, you know, probably a dozen active researchers and a couple dozen more kind of affiliates that are all looking at this from kind of different angles, but we're in frequent conversation with one another to compare, to discuss kind of common themes. And I'm so thankful to that group because I think that's really helped develop my broader sensibility with all of this. So somebody who is in the Bay Area, who works on Silicon Valley critically, who has a sense of Silicon Valley as it has evolved over time from being in that space, and as somebody who has a broad knowledge of the cultural history of Silicon Valley, talk us through some of the major landmark moments for the region. How did Silicon Valley become capital S, capital V, Silicon (laughs) Valley? Yes, right. So I would argue that there hasn't really been one unified moral vision today or in the past, but I would say that there were kind of dominant visions. And there's some amazing scholarship that covers the economic history of the area, various regulatory peculiarities, flows of immigration, all of these sorts of things that made Silicon Valley and this particular area, you know, the San Francisco region centered on San Jose, the quote unquote Silicon Valley against which everything else ends up being compared, right? So if you look back in the 50s and early 60s, it was really centered around military grants, the space race, the industry is very much focused on chip fab and hardware, it didn't have the same kind of moral weight that it does today, certainly. But in the late 60s, onwards, there was increasing countercultural influences. And this is what Fred explores so wonderfully in his work. And he also, in fact, explores that 40s and 50s history as well. But this is, you know, very strongly mythologized even today. This is the era of like the homebrew computing club, MIT's hackers on the other coast and all of this. In the 80s and 90s, this, of course, shifts to this language of the electronic frontier and cyberspace and, you know, William Gibson has a kind of strong hand in kind of shaping some of the imaginaries that become dominant here. But also, you know, early hacker conferences and the well, there's a lot of other important threads here that help establish this cultural identity alongside an economic boom time. And this cultural identity tends to be very market oriented, tends to be pretty libertarian. It's very rationalist. It's kind of taking a page from economics where people are assumed to be rational actors. It is very individualist, where people are really assumed to kind of act for themselves. And I look at the threads of this, even in some of the the communities I'm part of now, computer-supported cooperative work, the cooperative would suggest, you know, a, a more collective understanding. But even there, there's a lot of focus on the person and one machine, right? So there's a lot of individualism. 
And the training that I got in undergrad in computer science was very much steeped in this. So I would say these continue to really be anchors in this moral vision more broadly. I would argue that this idea has kind of fractured in the 2000s and possibly even before. I mean, the industry has gone through boom and bust cycles for a very long time now, going back to the 50s. But I think, you know, this might be influenced by kind of my own coming of age in this time of like the 2001 bust, right? I would say, though, that the hacker imaginary is still very strong among a kind of older generation, kind of older millennial like I am and, and older of computer professionals. One thing that I find really interesting is that there is a rising interest in kind of collective action among some of the younger computer science professionals today. And I'm really interested in kind of what this means for the future of the field. I would say that from what I see, at least, computer science training still really doesn't help these workers really develop a language and critical thinking to really grapple with some of the complexities here, the exclusions in the industry. But I hope that there is some cause for celebration. Of course, against all of this, there's also you know, all of these other areas that try to be like Silicon Beach or Silicon Alley or Silicon whatever, right? There's such a symbolic weight to the phrase Silicon Valley, even as just what this means is kind of fuzzy, right? Like there is no city named Silicon Valley. Is it San Jose? Is it Sunnyvale? Is it up the peninsula? Is it the whole area? Is it San Francisco? You know, some people cite Menlo Park because of Facebook now. Palo Alto has Stanford, obviously. So yeah, I think that there's a fuzziness within this area at the same time there's this kind of mythologized sense of like Silicon Valley as a kind of magic around that term. People try to claim a piece of that economic pie through the symbolism of that term. And when you get, for example, a Silicon Beach, what are they claiming? What are they tethering themselves to? What kind of aspiration are they envisioning for themselves and replicating the name? So they often very actively adopt many of the same kinds of moral vision around, you know, market focused. They might bring in some really kind of problematic phrases like move fast and break things, right? They might try to deregulate in certain ways. I have a really interesting case study, a point of comparison with a colleague in France who's studying the kind of state-sponsored tech boom there and the way that the state is actually trying to co-opt some of this, in some ways, very anti-state language around innovation and kind of breaking barriers in order to kind of stimulate a kind of startup scene in Paris and beyond. So yeah, I look at things like that and I say, okay, there is clearly something that they are trying to emulate here. And it's not clearly they want a piece of that economic pie, but they do it through this kind of symbolic gestures. I don't think that we can talk about Silicon Valley history and its cultural or moral vision without talking about the very specific socioeconomic and racial and cultural history of that space in the Bay Area broadly. How does that dimension, and in particular the geographical and economic divides that mark that space so heavily, I remember being in Palo Alto and seeing the stark divide between Palo Alto, East Palo Alto. You see that division replicated all over the peninsula and the city and the East Bay. How do those divisions play into the broader vision of the tech industry and the manifestation of the vision in tech products? As someone who lives in this area, I love talking about this kind of racialized history of the area with neighbors. <laughs> so many see it as, you know, this liberal utopia, and they really don't understand the ways that redlining was present here, just as it was present all across the U.S. Many 
local covenants still have racist clauses in them that say that you can't sell this house to particular kinds of people. Of course, those would be struck if somebody actually challenged them. They'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, strike that out. But nobody's actually bothered to strike those things out, right? And this is not something that's specific to the Bay Area at all. It's all across the US. But you can very much see the divides between Palo Alto and East Palo Alto, if you think of, I don't know, Piedmont and Oakland, West Oakland, um, is, or the hills across the East Bay and the Iron Triangle of Richmond, there's these divides all across the Bay Area where you can still see the effects of redlining from half a century ago, right? In how infrastructure was built up, what kind of houses were built. And so part of my own project is to really spend time in and understand not just the kind of glitzy high tech areas, but to really understand all the different populations that live across what's called Silicon Valley, but are often swept aside in discussions of the capital SV Silicon Valley, and to really bring their histories and realities into the picture, because in so many ways, they prop up what is possible in the tech world. My own focus right now in my next project is how particular visions of childhood tends to influence the industry, influences how it sees itself. There's, of course, an obsession with youth. There's a lot of life longevity, kind of life extending kind of interest. But there's also a lot of design that kind of is either specifically aimed at children or is aimed at kind of young adults, possibly, that draws on a particular vision of the child. Of course, this is an outgrowth of one laptop or child work, but it's trying to kind of take this question to the industry more broadly and to also look at the longstanding Black communities across the Bay Area, which have been kind of marginalized and pushed aside and moved in various ways. Let's look at the rising Latinx community, which is very young and very vibrant, full of children. And how does what the tech industry design and the assumptions they make about it set the stage for who the next generation of tech workers will be. And one thing I find interesting is across so many of these communities, I see this especially in the Latinx communities, the tech world is kind of understood as outsiders, but a lot of kids aspire to be part of it. And they see that as a path to upward mobility. They kind of understand it as someone who lives in the area and kind of sees glimpses of it. You know, it's it kind of become a central vision of upward mobility, even more so than, say, med school was in previous decades. And so I'm really interested to see whether this will cause any shifts in the way computer science education is approached in the coming years. I really hope so, because there really, I think, need to be some major changes in the way computer science education plays out. But yeah, in my own research, I'm just really interested in bringing all of those different complicated stories into the picture. Also to think a bit about, there are wonderful accounts by a number of other scholars. Joy Lisi Rankin has a book called The People's History of Computing in the US. Raven Fouché has great work. Andre Brock has a new book out that bring in some of the other moral visions into the story. And they weren't dominant moral visions, obviously. But I think these kinds of explorations avoid reifying these dominant narratives. You know, as much as it's useful, hopefully, to understand how these moral visions in the tech world become so taken for granted by so many, you know, it's kind of like water to fish. I really also want to expand the view to include a lot of the people who are not considered, maybe are left out or are actively pushed aside. To go back to this idea of a moral vision, I'll give you a brief anecdote. Last quarter, I taught Westworld in my technically human course on ethics and technology. And as I was watching, it occurred to me that this was not so much a parable about how tech could play out in the show, which is in the genre of the Western, but rather 
it was making, I think, a rather important point that the genre of tech comes out of the Western, that tech arrives in the U.S. out of the Western frontier, that arrives in Silicon Valley, the site of vigilante justice, the site of the Western kind of um, lone rider. And in reading the description of your work, I couldn't help but think about how a moral vision emerging out of Silicon Valley might be linked to Silicon Valley's specific history, which is the history of ideas and morality coming out of Western American culture, that vigilante, that lone ranger. And the moral figures in its methodology that I just mentioned as the vigilante, things like manifest destiny guiding its principles, frontierism guiding its principles. Does a specific history and the self-image of the American West, particularly in those moral dimensions, figure into a moral vision? And if so, how? Yeah, I would say that American West imaginary is still certainly strong. I would say its heyday was probably the 80s and 90s in that early rhetoric around the frontier of cyber culture and all of that. And I often look to media to kind of see how that gets reflected. You know, I mentioned William Gibson, Tron. One of my hats is certainly media scholar. I take pretty seriously the influence of books and shows and other media can have on these visions. And those are very steeped in that kind of frontier language. I would say today there are Silicon Valley, Westworld, as you mentioned, movies like maybe The Social Network or books like The Circle show that that's been complicated. People are starting to kind of grapple with the fact that, you know, it isn't all just kind of this wild west, this untamed frontier. But I would say that that is still something that is present. It occurs to me that there's a really important related question here that is not just about Western frontierism and the kind of heritage of a specifically Western strain of American mentality and American consciousness, but about a particular kind of Berkeley consciousness, about a particular kind of San Francisco Peninsula ethical liberalism that seems to me to connect in some ways and disconnect in other ways from Silicon Valley's version of morality. And as anyone who has spent time in the Bay Area knows, that region famously prides itself in a kind of progressive attitude, right? In Berkeley, you see critiques of capitalism, imperialism, consumer culture, and conformity. But to me, that seems a bit at odds with a tech culture that is committed to a kind of excessive production and consumption with wealth and capital and with a globalizing uniformity. And it's further mystifying that tech culture, a kind of Google campus or what Dave Eggers envisions in his novel, The Circle, for example, hires these highly educated people coming out of some of the most liberal universities, people who tend to identify with progressive liberal values and its idealism. So how do we understand tech's particular potent consumer capitalism and its relationship to these good people with strong liberal ideals who come and build things that develop ultimately such vast inequality and that have these perhaps unintended but nonetheless destructive outcomes. How do you reconcile these two seeming oppositions? On the one hand, good people with seemingly idealistic intentions. And on the other hand, the result of the work which sometimes ends up perpetrating some truly destructive consequences that are at least on the surface, strikingly at odds with the values that their own communities and identities come out of. What happens to all of that green granola bar, crunchy, passionate idealism? 
Oh, man, this is a, such a great question and really gets to the heart of one of the things I'm trying to interrogate in my own research. Because, you know, it's very easy, I think, for other people who are kind of critiquing the tech industry or the tech world to say, oh, everyone in this industry must be terrible. Like, what, what are they doing? How could they live with themselves? And having been one of them, having, you know, <laughs> lived amongst them, many of my friends continue to be quote unquote techies. You know, I know that, like you said, there is a lot of idealism in this world and that, you know, idealism comes out in various ways. Locally, it comes out in various ways in the things people design. One reason I focus so much on the kind of blind spots that computer science education might have, as it is often formulated, is because I think those blind spots become kind of the starting points for some of the disconnects that you are highlighting. I would say that a further disconnect comes from the bubbles that we end up living in. You know, I feel like I have conversations fairly often with well-meaning friends who work in tech who don't ever go into East Palo Alto, say, or maybe they do, but because they are part of the gentrifying force who work for Facebook and want to live close to work and, you know, then complain on Nextdoor incessantly about all of the uncouth people and the fireworks and whatever else might be, you know, present in the area that they don't like. And of course, this is not a story that's unique to Silicon Valley. These kind of gentrifying stories happen in so many different places. But I would say that the kind of bubble that people end up in is very much a factor in the kind of disconnect that happens between kind of espousing and embracing very liberal ideals at maybe an abstract level or maybe within a kind of smaller friends group and then building things that end up being honestly possibly oppressive to people. And I think that there's another element here that I would highlight is that there are, of course, a lot of people who go into tech just to make money. And they kind of don't care as much about the moral valence of what they're doing. I feel like Facebook is a particularly interesting example because I know, you know, a dozen or so people who work at Facebook who are pretty idealistic. And I feel like working there has become an increasingly untenable position for an idealistic person. And so it's really interesting to see all the convoluted reasoning they have of like, well, I'm trying to change things from the inside. I'm trying to, you know, really kind of advocate for different points of view from the inside, clearly not very effectively, given all of the things that Facebook has done in the world. But I would say that from what they say, and from what I see, a lot of their colleagues and a number of the higher leadership at Facebook really are just kind of concerned about the money and are mainly there for that reason. And, you know, anything that would kind of upturn that is just not really considered, even if the rank and file really push for it. When I look at these kinds of trends, I feel sometimes a little bit frustrated because certainly the open source hacker community in the Bay Area and more broadly around the world is incredibly idealistic and sometimes, in fact, eschews money. Of course, they live within this context where they have easy access to money whenever they want. They can kind of pretty easily get a job in the tech world, maybe do a job for a few years and then live off of the savings that they have. So, of course, open source has been shaped by that. But the idealism there, I would say, is still very present and not as money focused. I had thought watching the Myanmar genocide play out and watching Facebook's implication in that story. And that is that it's almost as if there is not a dichotomy between the kind of idealism on the one hand and the kind of idealistic community or attitude or campus that gets developed. And on the other hand, these kind of 
destructive unintended consequences, but rather that they're mutually constitutive. That if you go to work every day on these campuses, you consider yourself to be a good person. Everybody around you is liberal. You're having a lot of fun. You're playing ping pong. There are free snacks. You don't pause to think about how those consequences play out outside of your bubble in other spheres. And there becomes that disjuncture between, as you put it, the abstraction of the ideals and the kinds of ways in which they manifest themselves in in very ugly realities. So often the obsession with these phrases, right, of we're connecting the world, whatever it might be, people become so fixated on them, they say, well, that's too bad. But really, you know, we still need to value totally free speech, or we need to value total connections, or we need to value whatever it is, whatever that abstract ideal is. And there might be some, you know, downsides along the way. But that's part of the cost of doing business, right? That's part of the cost of following this ideal to its logical, possibly terrible conclusion. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that bubble. And of course, one bubble, as I just talked about is the idea of the campus. And another is the bubble of heterogeneity in the tech industry, something that the tech industry has very famously had to account for recently. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you view the relationship between tech, social justice, and in particular in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion. How does tech and particularly Silicon Valley as the tech industry's foundational ecosystem interact with diversity, equity, and inclusion and the broader issues at stake in that dimension of social justice? And and why should Silicon Valley care? There's so much focus on uh, pseudo-meritocracy, on rationalism in the tech world, and that is often used as a cover for excluding a lot of different kinds of people, a lot of different kinds of voices and perspectives. This starts in computer science education. When I look at my own education at Berkeley, there was very much a focus on, you know, we'll teach you some really big ideas, but It's up to you to learn the tools. It's up to you to learn the languages. We don't teach you programming languages. You have to kind of pick that up on your own. And as someone who didn't come into that program, having done really any programming before, I really scrambled to catch up and to kind of keep up as you know, new environments were introduced. And I feel like that's just really indicative of a kind of general ethos in the world that certainly some people push back against. You know, I still hear stories of quite often, you know, people kind of really thrown in the deep end if they are not, it's a sink or or swim kind of idea. So if people are kind of falling through the cracks, right? If they are struggling, if they don't feel like they fit in, there isn't necessarily a lot of support for that. There are, of course, Many companies now have various groups that work to try to support diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of initiatives of various sorts, but I would not say that any of them really examine some of the broader assumptions that go into the field, you know, these larger imaginaries that we've been talking about a lot in this interview, certainly, and they don't necessarily even really consider larger structural issues around you know, what happens to minorities and women in the field? Even the pipeline metaphor that gets tossed around so often is problematic because it's like, well, just stuff more of those people in the pipeline at junior high school or elementary school or whatever it might be. And, you know, that will magically solve the problem, right? And of course, there has been a lot of scholarship more recently saying, oh, look, the pipeline is leaky. (laughs) Maybe this metaphor is not serving us because people like me, you know, who make it through an undergraduate program, maybe even work for a number of years in the field, ultimately drop out 
out. And if you take seriously the kinds of stories that they tell about why they eventually gave up on the field, there are very common themes here around, you know, people not taking them seriously, people expecting them to always kind of ex- account for their presence. There's a certain kind of assumed camaraderie among white men in particular, Asian men too, I would say, that the others are assumed not to be part of. And so that's one thing I'm kind of focusing in on. And in particular, you know, the way that people maybe tell stories about their own childhoods in their daily lives. I mean, I've heard stories of people asking in interviews, you know, when did you start programming and expecting that like, oh, I was, you know, 10 years old and I fell in love with the computer and, and I taught myself everything and I've been programming ever since, right? And that story might be more common for men, American men in particular, but it's not as common for a lot of other people who maybe first encounter programming and computer science in college or maybe in robotics in high school. That's a a more and more common story these days. The story is complicated about why diversity and inclusion efforts have failed so badly across the tech world. But I focus in on that kind of ideological, the realm of ideas and what kinds of assumptions do people make about who belongs and who doesn't at a level that they may not be fully aware of themselves. I wanted to ask you another question about the nature of diversity and that is geographical diversity. And you get at something very important, which is that Silicon Valley's vision comes out of a very specific local context, but that its products seek and often assume universality. What are some of the consequences of that asymmetry between local vision on the one hand and universal and global exportation on the other? Well, on one hand, I find it really interesting, too, because Silicon Valley has for its whole history, been so reliant on immigrant labor, right? On people kind of flowing in and flowing out. Annalise Saxinian has studied this in depth, as well as a number of other scholars. But there is still a kind of local vision, right? Something very particular about who lives here and honestly, who is able to make it here, right? Even if they come from elsewhere, they have to have a particular kind of training, a particular kind of sensibility in order to be able to get a job in these companies. So it definitely is, you know, a very kind of specific local context, a local culture. There is definitely an obsession with scaling, with universalizing stories. And, you know, part of this, again, is the money. If you were able to scale something and you were able to, you know, do it without having to add in a lot of human labor at every step, or as various scholars of labor in the tech world have examined, if the labor that you can add in can be extremely cheap, then yeah, there's this kind of vision of scaling up to the world. And part of that, of course, again, is this kind of these gaps in computer science training that really don't grapple with kind of local particularities. I've gotten to know Berkeley and Stanford's curriculum, especially closely, having been a student at both schools, but I'm familiar with a few of the others too. And they all really focus on kind of compartmentalizing the real world and to the extent they can ignoring it. So within that context, it's easy to believe that scale and this kind of universalizing story are not only possible, but maybe even inevitable that tech can kind of naturally scale up, that maybe there are some particularities with maybe regulatory schemes around the world that you might have to deal with for a little bit, but then you can put pressure to kind of make a universalizing thing. I think there is some breakdown in that more recently, especially with some of the rise of fairly robust regulatory schemes around the world. You know, I look to GDPR, I look to CCPA to a lesser degree in California, but these are in many ways kind of reactions to oversteps in that kind of scaling and universalizing regime where very kind of American values around individualism, focus on business interests over personal people's interests were exported around the world and 
elsewhere, people started pushing back. And then even now it's come home, right, with CCPA, right, in California, there's been a lot of pushback and increasing privacy regulation around this. I want to focus now on one particular aphorism that has gotten exported, and it's now become kind of a universal maxim about tech. One saying that seems to have driven Silicon Valley culture for most of, at least for much of its recent history, that phrase, move fast and break things. It's a metaphor that Silicon Valley seems to almost live by, almost a moral vision aligned with other pithy sayings like act first, ask forgiveness later, or you have to break some eggs to make an omelet, right? In general, I warn my students against cliches or wisdom that is so ossified that we often repeat these cliches or accept them without really stopping to think about what they mean or what ethics they're pivoted around. I think this particular taken for granted wisdom, move fast and break things, has gotten Silicon Valley into a lot of very serious ethical trouble. And it's a saying that has caused a lot of damage. As an ethos, it patterns and encourages a way of thinking that, in my view, directs people away from more critical, careful thought that I think is required to consider, for example, the ethical consequences of a certain decision or design or strategy or idea. Move fast or break things discourages people from seeking out critics or objections. But this cliche, move fast and break things, is one that seems to have governed the culture. How did it come to be that way? And what are the advantages and the consequences of this particular cliche or metaphor as a moral vision for how technological innovation and production should or does proceed? Oh, yes. I hate those those sayings. I still hear them all the time. Um, and that was, I mean, move fast and break things in particular was like Facebook's unofficial motto. And, you know, the joke is, oh, whoops, we broke democracy. Okay. I remember visiting a friend who was working at Facebook, I think in 2011, it was literally painted on the wall of the lobby, right? <laughs> like it was very present. In my own teaching, I would say I try to really tackle these head on. So, you know, if somebody says, oh, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelet, you know, who or what are those eggs? What are the consequences of breaking them? There are always consequences, right? And I think move fast and break things. Likewise, you know, what gets broken? What are the consequences of that? I remember hearing those also when I was, again, an undergrad in computer science, and it really rubbed me the wrong way. I think one, especially act first, ask forgiveness later. It kind of reminds me of assault, right? Like it gives me this really deep, negative, visceral reaction. You know, certainly these get repeated. I, I would say that they're more of a symptom than a cause. They certainly reinforce this kind of narrative of exceptionalism, this kind of Wild West kind of moral vision that, you know, maybe is driven by making money over all else or this kind of singular, very simplistic view of the world, you know, connect to everybody over all else. It's a little more of a symptom, though, than cause. It's more of a kind of reinforcement mechanism. A question about your teaching. You teach at UC Berkeley, and presumably a lot of your students end up staying around and working in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. My question is really a bigger question about what kind of training technologists should have, aside from technical training, going into the industry where they're tasked with developing utilities that will be used by a diverse and globalized public, and that a public that will use these tools in a multiplicity of ways with profound consequences for our world, for our culture, and for our environment. But let's start at Berkeley. What training, background, exposure, and context should a budding technologist have going into the Silicon Valley ecosystem? If you were going to train a technologist, what skills, knowledge, and understanding do you think that your student should have before they go into tech? So I teach in data science right now. This is, you know, a new field, at least by that name, data science, but it 
in many ways borrows a lot of cultural elements from computer science. One pitch I have to the program I'm involved in long term is that I want elements of the complicated ethical consequences, you know, borrowing from science and technology studies, from sociology, in every class that they teach. Right now, I teach the optional ethics class. And too often these classes are optional. They are marginalized. My program, probably about 20% of the students take the class and those who opt in, they're great, right? But the ones who I really need to reach, I think, are those who don't opt in. And when I look more generally at technical training, whether it's computer science or data science or a number of other related fields, it's that ethical component is, you know, even if there's a required class, it's in one course, and then it's not kind of across all of the other courses. So we're really working in the School of Information to kind of make that a little bit more universal. It, in many ways, will require a pretty big overhaul of the curriculum because, you know, so much of the curriculum is like, okay, we're learning deep learning models. Here's a data set. Here's some tools. Go at it, right? Um, they don't really talk about like, wow, what, what's in this data set? Who's represented? Who's not even here? Maybe who's misrepresented? What does that mean for them? What kinds of power do you wield as a data scientist or as a computer scientist or as a technologist more generally over people with the choices that you can have, that you make in the design of technologies and the design of models, whatever it might be. So I really love to see an overhaul of lots of these programs in time. I am only one person. I just teach this one class for now. But that is, I would say, a hope I have for the industry more broadly. And I hope that the reckoning that the tech industry has been in for the last little while, the, the quote unquote tech lash and kind of various other pushback that it's been getting, possibly more regulatory requirements that they are placed under, will possibly trigger that. Just kind of following along online and how you know, CCPA and other things are discussed, it's often discussed with eye rolls or kind of some amount of derision, like, oh, great, now we've got more stuff from legislators who don't really understand us, even if maybe legislators don't always understand the technical specificities of particular systems, they are representing a broader concern around the effects of tech in everyday life, the surveillance, the control, the kinds of regulation that it has on us as people. And the fact that if they can't self-regulate, which I think has clearly failed in many ways, they might need other kinds of regulations. It's interesting. Part of the research that I'm doing right now, I'm tracking the job market in tech. And one of the areas of exponential growth is in ethical workers. So you'll see the title ethical hacker, or you'll see ethical officer. It comes up all of the time. And it makes me very curious what kind of skills tech companies think that they're budding technologists need in order to fulfill the requirements of these jobs and in order to hopefully build a more ethical ecosystem in tech. I, like you, am a little cynical that these companies aim to develop more ethical practices on their own. Perhaps it's more compliance than a moral vision that they have about the ethics of their own products. But it does make me hopeful that there will be some rethinking about how we ought to train people who are going into technical fields and what kind of skills they need to be equipped with. For example, a knowledge of the history of ideas, an understanding of science fiction and how market projections kind of work and come out of those imaginary narratives and parables that are so deeply ingrained in our culture, things like Gibson's novels that, as you discussed about. I think one thing that would be helpful for these technologists to know is is what you describe as technological utopianism. What is technological utopianism? And then I have a follow-up question about utopias. 
you know, technological utopianism takes us right back to those initial ideas that we explored around one laptop per child. It's the idea that technology itself can bring about a better world. And this often gets tied up with a related idea called technological determinism. Stories that are technologically determinist aren't always utopian, but I would argue that technological utopianism always has an element of determinism in it, in that if you put a technology out there, it kind of doesn't matter what social world it goes into, it will have some kind of amazing transformatory effect. So we saw this with One Laptop Per Child, clearly. We hear it certainly in narratives around the tech world more broadly. I imagine uh, connecting in with utopias and media is, uh, is part of your next question. It is. I wanted to ask you something that's been percolating in my mind, and that is I teach science fiction. And teaching science fiction has taught me that frequently utopian ideations, particularly when they're envisioned by powerful leaders, often turn dystopian particularly when aided or governed or developed by powerful tech culture and products. And that's the basic melody of Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World, Forster, The Machine Stops, a number of Gibson's novels, or more recently, Eggers' The Circle, which we talked about, in which a powerful Facebook, Google, Twitter conglomerate turns from a utopian attempt to know everything and to connect everyone, a very noble vision, into a destructive anti-democratic form of ultimate surveillance. What do you think that these fictional renderings of aspiring utopias do that make them so frequently teeter into total dystopias? Do you think that these fictions can teach us anything about the nature of moral visions, utopian and otherwise, especially in tech? I also love science fiction. I haven't taught as much with it, but I am a avid reader and think very deeply about it as a form of media. And I think the message that so often gets told in those utopia to dystopia stories is one of a disconnection from the everyday, right? They might have a particular ideal that holds up their utopian vision, a particular ideal of an orderly society, for example, or a particular ideal of connection and free expression. And when that actually gets articulated on the ground with, you know, vying interests and maybe a landscape of scarcity, that's when that utopian vision turns dystopic and becomes, you know, a tool for oppression and control. Of course, one thread through all of those is power and who wields it, who can hold it. And in stories, of course, it's easy to kind of write in a all-powerful society or an all-powerful kind of governing structure in society or an all-powerful technology, honestly, that can kind of enforce its will. You know, power in the real world is, of course, a lot more complicated, but I would argue that the tech world has long been fairly powerful. You know, they are very flush with capital. Increasingly, computer science has been taking over higher education. If you look at the percentage of students majoring in computer science in so many colleges, it's in some places a quarter, in some places a third, in some places a half of all students. It's just amazing how much that has influenced disciplines all across the board. And I look at that power coupled with the same kind of you know, naively idealistic stories that we hear about in science fiction as utopian. It's in some ways no wonder that it feels like we're living in a bit of a dystopia right now. And I think especially with coronavirus, with Black Lives Matter protesters, with the deep racial, obviously deep, deep racial inequities that have triggered all of those protests with environmental 
catastrophe, kind of lapping at the edges of so many of our realities. I only hope that sci-fi is useful as a tool, not only for escapism, you know, the kind of high science fiction, the very technical sorts of stories that techies tend to be more drawn to possibly, but that it is a place to kind of grapple with some of the really messy consequences that these kinds of visions can have. One last question. Speaking of dystopian visions, dystopian moments, they say that prophecy is the lowest form of journalism. I don't pretend to be a journalist, but I'm interviewing you. So we'll say that prophecy is the lowest form of journalism. And as academics, we're typically warned away from making futurist projections. But I'll ask it anyway. Where do you see the future of Silicon Valley going in this moment, this dystopian moment, and into the next? What shifts and pivots and leaps do you see heading our way in terms of technological culture as we move forward in this new ecosystem of social distancing, of reliance on tech, and of our urgent attachment to tech becoming perhaps even more so? Yes. And I got to say, you know, as, as careful as I try to be in my own scholarship, I am definitely not good at projection necessarily. I remember back in 2007, when a friend joined Facebook, I said, oh, Facebook, that's a flash in the pan. So clearly my own uh, powers of projection are not necessarily strong. But I do see two paths that I find particularly interesting in Silicon Valley right now that I've been watching very closely. One is the kind of almost turn away from some of the ideals that motivated the hacker world in particular and, and a turn towards kind of raw money grubbing. And this path very much worries me because this path evades responsibility at every turn. This path continues to amass power. This path doesn't care about the consequences as much as they can get away with not caring about the consequences of their actions. The other path, though, that I am very interested in following and as much as I can in supporting is embodied by organizations like the Tech Workers Coalition. So this is a group of largely rank and file tech workers at all levels from kind of temp employees to kind of senior software engineers that is trying to push back and trying to kind of learn about and harness collective action as a tool for pushing back against this very corporate vision that the tech world has been kind of turning towards and in some ways has always been present to an extent, but is a little more kind of naked these days, a little more blatant. And I very much hope that that movement, as small as it is right now, and as much as you know, a number of the people are still just really getting up to speed on kind of how to even think about these ideas because their training really didn't provide them with those tools. I really hope that they can have a voice and that they can have some good effects in the world. That said, when I look at times of uncertainty and disaster, I think about you know scholarship. I have a good friend um, up at University of Washington, Megan Finn, who has studied information dissemination and networks and um, kind of the effects of information in times of disaster. And I think a lot about her work today because so often the kinds of uncertainties that arise around these sort of catastrophic moments and all of the disinformation that flows and all of the kind of grappling everybody does with what to believe and what to trust ends up re-entrenching the powerful more. And I very much hope that we don't have a retrenchment of a surveillance state of, you know, destructive capitalism, of deeply racist society in the US and around the world. I would love to see an overturning of all of that, but it's going to take 
really a lot of work by really a lot of people. And I hope we can sustain it. Thank you, Morgan. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you.